This sermon is brought to you by Shofar Christian Church. We hope that you will be blessed by this message. Our audio and video sermons are also available on Shofar TV to download and share. Thanks very much. Privilege as always to come and share with you guys. And uh, I, um, I'm feeling a little bit... Um, uh, sick this morning, got a bit of a chest and a cough, so excuse me, but um, if, uh, you know, when, when you're not feeling so well, it's just a reminder about how dependent you are on God, that you're just human, you know, that, you, that you're just normal, and, and actually that's a big part of what I want to preach about this morning. Um, recently, you guys here in the Western Cape had a drought, and there's nothing like a drought to remind you how dependent you are, Right? Um, all of a sudden, things that you took for granted, you know, just aren't there anymore, you know, and the resources that you that you took for granted aren't available as freely and as readily as before, and all of a sudden, you realize, but, you know, hang on, you know, I'm really like, we are really like dependent on the resources that God has provided for us, and it's not like the drought makes us dependent. The drought only reminds us of what was true all along. That we as human beings are dependent. We always need God. We always need what He provides for us. And um, in other words, because we are dependent beings, we need provision. We need specifically God's provision. And, and that's what the text that we're going to read this morning is all about, about God's provision. I'm going to read for you. Um, you can see up there is my family. So we can bring you greetings from, uh, from Joburg. My lovely wife is sitting in front, Richelle. And um, so greetings from Joburg. Um, if you can just bring up the next slide, I'm going to be reading for us from 1 Kings 17. It's the, the beginning of the story of Elijah. Uh, for a couple of weeks in, up in Joburg, I've been preaching through the um, biblical account of Elijah, and I've really been enjoying it and, and realizing that it's, it's more applicable and more relevant to our situation than we usually realize. So let's, let's read the first part of, of 1 Kings 17. Um, I'm reading from the NIV. It says, now Elijah the Tishbite from Tishbe in Gilead. Oh, sorry, before I, as, as I start reading, just try and notice the theme of God's provision throughout this, this text. I want you to just notice that. Now Elijah the Tishbite from Tishbe in Gilead said to Ahab, as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah, leave here, turn eastward and hide in the Kerith ravine east of the Jordan. You will drink from the brook and I have ordered the ravens to feed you there. So he did what the Lord told him, what the Lord had told him. He went to the Kerith ravine east of the Jordan and stayed there. The ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening and he drank from the brook. Sometime later, the brook dried up because there had been no rain in the land. And then the word of the Lord came to him. Go at once to Zarephath in Sidon and stay there. I have commanded a widow there uh, in, in that place to supply you with food. So he went to Zarephath. When he came to the town gate, a widow was there gathering sticks. He called to her and, and asked, Would you bring me a little water in a jar so I, so I may have a drink? As she was going to get it, he called, and bring me, please, a piece of bread. 
As surely as the Lord your God lives, she replied, I don't have any bread, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. I'm gathering a few sticks to take home and make a meal for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. Elijah said to her, don't be afraid, go home and do what you have said. But first, make a small cake of bread for me from what you have and bring it to me. And then make something for yourself and your son. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. The jar of flour will not be used up and the jug of oil will not run dry until the day the Lord gives rain on the land. She went away and did as Elijah had told her. So there was food every day for Elijah and for the woman and her family. For the jar of, oil, of, of, the jar of flour did not, was not used up and the jug of oil did not run dry in keeping with the word of the Lord spoken by Elijah. Lord, we thank you for your word and we pray that you'll instruct us and encourage us from your word and, and even correct us from your word, Lord. We, we just come and bring our hearts before you and we pray, Lord, that our hearts will really be good soil for the seed of your word to fall in. Thank you, Lord, that what you have for us is what's best for us and we receive it now in Jesus' name. Now, there's just one aspect of God's provision that I want to focus on, and you might not have noticed it as I read it. You might have noticed very clearly the the theme of God's provision. But I want to tell you this morning that God's provision is actually offensive, and not offensive as opposed to defensive, okay? Offensive as in designed, in some instances and in some ways, to offend, okay? And there's good reason for that. We're going to look at that. I just want to discuss it under, under three points. I just want to show you how God's um, provision is offensive, firstly, to us, because it runs out. Secondly, it's offensive to Baal, because it exposes him. And thirdly, it's offensive to the proud, because it's by grace. So let's look at that. Um, firstly, God provides to Elijah, and um, he says to him, in this drought, you know, go eastward on the other side of the Jordan to the Kirith Ravine. In other words, go outside the promised land. You know, cross the Jordan and go outside the promised land. And it's um, interesting that God sends Elijah away from faithless Israel outside, who's, who's in the promised land. He sends, sends um him outside the promised land, and then he provides for Elijah as he provided for faithful Israel when they were in the desert outside the promised land. What did he provide for them? Bread, manna, meat, quail, and water, even from a rock. Okay? But Elijah even gets a double portion. He gets bread and meat in the morning and in the evening. Okay? So, um, God provides for him in the wilderness. But, Here's the interesting thing. God's supernatural provision to Elijah comes in a very natural way. And sometimes we find that a bit offensive. Now, if God's going to provide supernaturally, then why doesn't he provide in a way that's more spectacular, that's more like over the top, that's more like wow. Okay? But now it comes, you know, just through a normal brook and through crows, ravens. Okay? And sometimes we, we, we find that a little bit offensive. We, we, because our expectation is wrong, because we expect that whatever God does supernaturally must come in spectacular, supernatural way. But sometimes God's supernatural provision comes in very natural means. 
And, and I, I, I want to tell you this morning, don't miss God's provision because it comes in a way that you don't expect and in a way that is different from what you would have preferred. You might have preferred something a bit more wow and spectacular. But when God's provision comes very naturally, receive it. It's still supernatural. <laughs> it's, it's still supernatural provision. But, but not only that. I mean, what's, what's even a bit more offensive, especially to us as modern people, is like, you know, these crows bringing bread and meat. You know, and the, a, a raven is not the cleanest animal. You know, and we would have said, shucks, I don't know where that beak has been, you know. And now it's carrying my, my breakfast and my dinner to me in that beak. I don't even know where that, and this water from this brook, you know, I, I only drink bottled water and distilled water, you know. I don't know how clean this water is. So often we get offended at God's provision because it's not exactly the way we would have liked it. And it doesn't quite suit our preferences, Right? It's not just me that's like that. Come on now, don't stare at me like that. <laughs> I know we're all like that. Sometimes God provides for us in a way that is designed to challenge our preconceived ideas and our prejudices and our expectations. Because God often wants to deliver us of them. Okay, But that's not the most offensive thing about God's provision to Elijah. The most offensive thing about God's provision to Elijah is that it actually runs out. It says in verse 7 that a little while later, let me just read that, sometime later the brook dried up because there had been no rain in the land, according to the word of Elijah, Nochals. And sometimes we find that very offensive. You know, we say where God guides, He provides, and that is true. That is true. But then sometimes God guides us somewhere and He provides for a while and then His provision runs out. And then we get offended. It's like, God, what's going on here? I, I thought you know, knew everything. You know, I thought you were omniscient. I thought you were all-knowing. I thought you knew the future. Didn't, didn't you plan for this? What's going on? Why is the provision running out? And we get offended. But even God's provision that runs out is God's provision. It's important that we realize that God knows best. And there's always a reason for why God does what He does the way He does it. Right? I once, a couple of months ago, I spoke to a, to a couple and they were telling me how they really sensed God was moving them on from one season to a new season. And it was a difficult transition for them. They, they, they didn't actually really want to do it because it was a big move. It would have been a bold move. Um, it was a challenging move. It would have been really out of their comfort zone. All kinds of stuff that, that just made it difficult. But they, they really sensed over and over God was confirming to them that it, that, it, that it was calling them to make this big move, this, this uncomfortable move. But, but they were sort of hesitant. And, and as they were sharing with me, I, I just said to them, you know, it, it seems clear to me from what you're saying that God is calling you into a new season. And they were, they were sharing how certain things that were just there in the previous season are not there anymore, that were available, that were provided in the previous season, weren't being provided anymore. And I said to them, well, you know, you can't expect the grace of the old season to continue into the new season. In fact, one of the ways that God gets us to move when we don't want to is by allowing His grace in the, for the previous season to dry up, to force us into the new season. Right? So that's part of how God guides us. 
So we should not be offended when God's provision dries up. Because there's a good reason why it dries up. Now I'm not saying every time God's provision dries up, it means that he's moving you somewhere else or into a new season or something. There are other reasons too, but that's one of the reasons. That's one of the reasons. But when God's provision dries up in one place, he always provides in another place. And that's exactly what he says to Elijah. He says to him, um, go on to Zarephath. But before I, I go on to the next point, I just want I, I just want to maybe give you an even more important reason why God allows his provision sometimes to dry up. And it's this. And, and, and you've got to get this because this is massively important. God's provision, God causes his provision sometimes to dry up because as fallen human beings, we have this nasty tendency to seek God's gifts rather than seeking God, to seek God's provision rather than seeking God. We have this nasty human tendency when God provides for us of idolizing his provision and actually loving his provision more than we love him. And God causes his provision to dry up so that we would be reminded that the provision is not God. God was the provision. To break the power of idolatry in our lives. To set us free of the things that keep us in bondage and addiction. Because we get so addicted so easily to the good gifts that God gives us. And we relate to them in the wrong way and they become idols and traps in our lives. So God causes it to dry up. But then he provides in another way. Turn to your neighbor and tell them, God is at war with the idols in your life. So, God's provision dries up in order to, even when God's provision dries up, it's God providing for us by setting us free of things that can become idols. Now, here's my question to you, and I just want you to answer it honestly in your heart. Do you seek God's provision more than you seek God? Do you seek God's provision more than you seek God? Because if you do, God's provision will offend you by drying up. And, and it's so easy for us to do that. Hear me now. It's so easy for us to do that. Do you desire that spouse more than you desire God? Do you desire... Um, say something for your children who are very close to your heart more than you do. Do you desire that new job more than you desire God? Do you desire signs and wonders more than you desire God? And none of those things are bad things. In fact, they're all good things. But the problem is when we want good things more than we want God, those good things become idols. And God will cause them to dry up God will cause his provision to cease in order to deliver us from those things that we idolize. Okay.
Is that a bit of a hard word? <laughs> so the provision was not God. God was the provision. Just, just think of Psalm 23, the famous Psalm 23. It says, surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. In other words, what, what David was saying, he says, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. In other words, the reason why God's goodness and mercy and his provision follows me is because I follow him. I follow the Lord. And that's exactly what we see here. Just after the provision dries up, the Lord says to Elijah, go to Zarephath in Sidon. And here's the principle. The provision of God follows the word of God. God's provision always follows his word. And that's why it's important to see God and not his provision. Because if you only see God's provision, you'll get it sometimes. But if you see God, you'll get both him and his provision all the time. And that provision might not always look the way you want it to or the way you like it to, but it'll always be better than what you want. You see, God, I like what um, Tim Keller says. He says, God will always give you what you ask for in prayer or what you would have asked for if you knew what he knew. Okay, so he sends Elijah to, to, to Zarephath, which is in Sidon. Now, what's going on here is God's making his provision very offensive to Baal in order to expose him. So let me just give you a little bit of background there. Um, I'm going to read now in, in verse 1, where, where it talks about Elijah confronting Ahab, the king of Israel. But just in the, in the previous chapter, 1 Kings 16, I just want to give you a bit of background on Ahab. From verse 30, it says, Ahab son of Omri, did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. He not only considered it trivial to commit the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, uh, but he also married Jezebel, daughter of Ethbal. Notice the word Baal there in her father's name, Ethbal, king of the Sidonians. He was king of Sidon. Now remember, Zarephath was in Sidon, okay? King of the Sidonians, and began to serve Baal and worship him. He set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal that he built in Samaria. And Ahab also made an Asherah pole and did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than did all the kings of Israel before him. So he was, he's a bad king. He's like a seriously bad king. And what he did, I mean, a lot of the previous kings also worshipped Baal. <coughs> but what Ahab did with the help of Jezebel was he institutionalized the worship of Baal in Israel. He built a temple in Samaria, which was the capital of the northern kingdom. He built an altar there where they made sacrifices to Baal. His wife, Jezebel, put something like 400 prophets of Baal on the state payroll and 450 prophets of Asherah on the state payroll and paid them to make sacrifices, and to go out into Israel and to evangelize the people and convert them. And we know from later texts that they were very successful because after they'd done their job, there were about 7,000 people in Israel who weren't worshiping Baal. So this is how committed they were. I mean, they, they wanted to wipe out the worship of Yahweh from Israel completely and replace it with the worship of Baal. And they, they came very close. They really came very close to being successful and actually doing it. Now, who is this Baal? Um, in, in texts found in, in Ugarit, which was near Tyre and Sidon, um, which was where, remember, Jezebel lived. Like I said, her father was Ethbal, and he was the king of Sidon, but he was also, according to other, some of these texts that, that we have, the priest or the high priest of Baal. In, 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 so he was both the, the king and the, and the high priest. So Jezebel 
um, came from Sidon. And Baal was depicted. He's the deity. He comes from, he's Baal of the Sidonians. And, and, and um, Baal was depicted as a nature deity in the Canaanite pantheon. A storm god called, in some of these texts, he's literally called the rider on the clouds. And um, he's often portrayed with a lightning in his, in his one hand and his voice, you know, having a voice of, of thunder. And obviously, you know, ancient Syro-Palestine, um, Israel, Sidon, those areas were agrarian society. And um, because Baal supposedly provided the rain, according to their uh, mythology, their, their faith system, um, he was worshipped to ensure the fertility of the land and the production of crops. And think about this. We don't always appreciate this enough. But, I mean, we felt here in the Western Cape, we felt the, the drought, you know, quite severely. But we're not even an agrarian society. We can import crops and stuff from elsewhere. They couldn't. Or, or they were very limited in their ability to do that. When there was a drought, they felt it immediately and very intensely. Uh, intensely. Everything was dependent on the land. All their food supply, all their security was dependent on the land. When the rains didn't come, it really hit them hard. And, and, and if you understand that, that everything about them, I mean, the milk and, uh, that they made cheese from and, 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 and the grain and, and all the fruit, it all came from the land. And when it didn't rain, all of that dried up. It, 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 it makes you understand why they were so tempted to worship Baal, who supposedly brought the, land, the rain. Okay? And, and now, here's, here's what happens. Um, God comes to, to, sends Elijah to Ahab. And listen to what he says. It says, Now Elijah the Tishbite from Tishbe said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the, in the next few years except at my word. So he says, As the Lord, and, and the Lord there in capital letters is a translation of Yahweh, the God of the Bible. The God of Israel. He's saying, you're importing a different God here. Yahweh is the God of Israel, not Baal. You're trying to make Baal the God of Israel, but Yahweh is the God of Israel. And what Elijah was doing, he was just fulfilling his ministry. His name, his very name, comes from two, two Hebrew words, Al, which means God, and Yah, which is the shortened word of Yahweh. So his very name means Yahweh is God. It was Baal isn't God, Yahweh is God. Okay? So that's what he's saying to him. He's saying, Yahweh is the God of Israel. And he says, as Yahweh, the God of Israel, lives, what is he implying? Baal doesn't. Yahweh lives, Baal is dead. He's not a real God, he's a dead God. And I'm going to prove it now, God's going to prove it now. Um, whom I serve, by implication, whom you don't serve. There will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. In other words, he's saying, you know, it's, it's like... Uh, he, he throws down this challenge, you know, and as he does his mic drop, you know, God is dropping the gauntlet to Baal because he's challenging. Can you see what he's doing? He's challenging Baal in his very area of expertise. He's saying, you claim to be the rider on the clouds. You claim to be the storm God. You claim to be the one who brings the rains and the fertility of the land. I'm going to challenge you in your very area of supposed speciality and expertise. I'm going to show you up as a fraud in the very area you claim to be powerful. Can you see that? So, it says there, um, just a f few reasons why, why it's challenging um, 
uh, Baal, while God, Yahweh is challenging Baal. Um, he, oh, oh, let me put it this way. He's dropping the gauntlet. He's, sa- he's wanting to show Israel, listen, this God that you want to depend on, that you are tempted to worship, because you think he can provide for you, he can't really provide for you. And in other words, what God is saying, and you need to get this, this is the important bit. What Baal claims to be, I am. That is what Yahweh is saying. What Baal claims to be, I am. And that is true of all idols. What every idol claims to be, only God, Yahweh, the God of the Bible, really is. No other God can provide. The promises that idols make to you are empty promises that they cannot fulfill. In fact, they're only promises that God can fulfill. Every promise an idol makes to you is a promise that only God can fulfill. In, in fact, you know, this is, this is really bad. So he, he not only comes and challenges Baal in his supposed area of expertise. Now you can imagine with, a, with a, you know, the God who supposedly brings the rain and who has a lightning bolt, you know, fire in his hand. You know, you can see why it ends on Mount Carmel with fire coming down. Because supposedly that's something that Baal could do. You know, he could throw the lightning and, and send the fire down. You know, so God is, this whole account is designed to show Baal up as a fraud, as the fraud, expose him. As, that's why it's so offensive to him. So, but not, but not only um, does he challenge him in his area of expertise, he goes and challenges him in his very backyard. Zarephath, where he sends Elijah during the drought, is right next door to Sidon. It's Baal's hometown. It's Baal's backyard. And now God sends Elijah to Baal's backyard. And in a drought where no one has any provision, God provides for Elijah right in Baal's backyard. <laughs> How's that for a slap in the face? <laughs> now there was this, there was this idea. Listen, listen to this. I mean, it, it gets even worse. Um, in... 1 Kings 20, I just want to read you, so you just can understand the, the fullness of the impact of, of this on, on, uh, on the people of the area and on, on the Israelites. There was this idea of localized gods, of um, gods who, um, that gods only had power in certain areas. So, so God was known, Yahweh was known as the God of Israel, so they thought, okay, he only has power in Israel. Baal is the God of Sidon, so he only has power in Sidon. Uh, there were Babylonian gods. And if one nation attacked another nation, if their gods were more powerful, then they would conquer the nation that they attacked. And, and, and that would be proof, according to them, that, that their gods were more powerful. Now remember, First Kings is written to Israelites under Babylonian captivity. And everyone in Babylon is telling them, yeah, our gods are more powerful than yours. And they're very tempted to believe that. And say, yeah, well, maybe their gods are more powerful. After all, they beat us. And we're in captivity in their country, you know. And their God is more powerful in their country. Our God maybe has power. So they're tempted to think in that way. But just listen to this, this 1 Kings 20 verse 23 and 28. It says, Meanwhile, the officials of the king of Aram advised him, Their gods are gods of the hills. Now, you can notice, I mean, they project their experience. They, they're polytheistic. They believe in many gods. So they, they think everyone must believe in many gods. So they say gods, but actually... You know, God is obviously just one. That is why, and it says, they're gods of the hills. That is why they were too strong for us. But if we fight them on the plains, surely we will be stronger than they. (laughs) 
In other words, they got that power in certain localized areas. Now listen to what our God responds. It says in verse 28, The man of God came up to the king of Israel. This is what the Lord says, Yahweh says, Because the Aramaeans think that God is a God of the hills and not a God of the valleys. In other words, that is not God everywhere. There's only God somewhere. That is only powerful in some places. I will deliver this vast army into your hands, and, I will, and you will know that I am the Lord. What is God saying? saying, because you underestimate me, because they underestimate me, because they say I'm only God in some places, I'm going to deliver them into your hands. And it says, so that you may know that I am the Lord, so that you may know that I am Yahweh. What does Yahweh mean? Yahweh means the one who is and the one who causes all else to be. In other words, I'm going to prove to you that I am not only a God on the hills or in the valleys, but I am the God who is everywhere, everything, powerful, everywhere. Don't underestimate me. There's nowhere where I'm not God. And that's exactly what people were saying in Israel and why God was sending Elijah to Zarephath, to Baal's very backyard, to go and provide for him there to prove that even in Baal's backyard, he is God and Baal is not. But that's not all. I mean, the, the worst of it is Sidon, which was part of the of Phoenicia, they were a coastal, sit, uh, coastal uh, region, and they were good at ship making and, and trading and so on. But they often had to import grain from Israel, if you read the rest of the Bible. Because Baal never provided for them. And it's like, God is saying, this is so ironic. Why on earth are you tempted to worship this deity who cannot even provide for his own people? Just look how I provide for you and then they import the grain that I provide for you. Why on earth are you tempted to worship him? And I mean, we can ask the same thing of our idols. Why on earth are we even tempted to worship idols when we know that God is the one that provides? If you go and look at those supposed idols, look at money, look at fame, look at whatever idol you're tempted with and, and see its track record. How, how much does it really fulfill? How much does it really provide? I, I, I think I heard Jim Carrey say once, you know, I wish that all people could be rich and famous so they can discover that being rich and famous doesn't make you happy. And yet we run after those idols as though that's going to fulfill us and make us happy and provide for us. And God says it's such nonsense. Okay, so um, God is at war with the idols in your life. He provides in a way designed to offend the gods that we are tempted to worship and expose them as frauds so that we will be dependent on Him. So, so God's provision is designed to wean us off our dependence on other things and make us more dependent on Him. Okay, but then, so firstly, God's provision is offensive to us because it runs out. It's offensive to Baal because it exposes him. And thirdly, it's offensive to the proud because it's by grace. So, uh, God provided for Elijah through this widow. Uh, let me just read the, the, uh, chapter 17. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, from verse 12. Sorry, from verse 8. But it says, sometime later the brook dried up because there was no rain in the land. And the word of the Lord uh, came to Elijah. Go at once to Zarephath and stay there. I've commanded a widow in that place to supply you with food. So he went to Zarephath. 
when he came to the town gate, a widow was there picking up sticks. He called to her and asked, would you give me a little water in a jar so that I may have a drink? And she, uh, as she was going to get it, he uh, called, and bring me, please, a piece of bread. As surely as the Lord your God lives, she, said, she replied, I only have, I don't, I, I don't have any bread. I only have uh, only a handful of <clears throat> flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. I'm gathering a few sticks to take home and make a meal for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. And Elijah said to her, don't be afraid. Don't do what you've done, but first make something for me and then the Lord will provide. Now, notice here, God comes and he provides through a widow. A Gentile widow. And often, we, we might not find that too offensive, but I can tell you Israel in Elijah's time, and we know from later scripture in Luke chapter 4 that Israel in Jesus' time found that very offensive. Because when Jesus quotes this and says there were many widows in Israel at the time, and yet God sent Elijah to none of them, but to this Gentile from Zarephath, what did they want to do? They drag him out of the city and they want to throw him off a cliff. They want to kill him. That's how offensive it is to them. Because how dare God provide through this outsider? And that's exactly what she was. She was an outsider. She was ethnically an outsider because she was a Gentile. She wasn't part of the people of God. She was a woman. And in those days, women were very much marginalized. I mean, even today, you know, in, a, in some senses, you can say, um, men are quite all right if God uses them to provide to women, but they, they're not necessarily as comfortable with God using women to provide for them. They, they, the men, the other men. <laughs> they, I like that. <laughs> um, but she wasn't just a woman, she was a widow, which means she didn't have a father. She didn't have a husband, and she didn't have a son old enough to take care of her. In, those, in that society, women couldn't work. You needed a man. Well, you, no, that's, that's wrong. Women could work, and they did work. They worked very hard. They just didn't get paid for the work they did, except if they became prostitutes. The only paying job a woman could do was prostitution. Okay? Her son was a small son. She carries him to Elijah when he dies later on, if you, if you go and read on. So he was a little boy, you know, he couldn't work. So she didn't have any man in her, in her life in this society to take care of her. She was completely marginalized. And God comes to her. It's interesting. God sends Elijah to this widow. And she's, she's not even a believer. But she says, as the Lord your God lives. Not the Lord my God or the Lord our God. She says, as the Lord your God lives. So she's, she's not even a believer. Okay? And God sends him to her. And here's the principle. God works by grace because he uses outsiders. And God approaches us before we approach him. But, but more than that, it says, I've commanded a widow there to provide for you. And then Elijah arrives at the gate of the city. And... Surprise, surprise, the woman's there. Coincidence, the widow's there, you know. But she seems blissfully unaware of God's command for her to provide for. <laughs> right? Can you see that? What's the principle there? God speaks to you before you can even hear it. And the amazing thing is somehow she obeys God's command without even knowing that she's heard God's command. God, 
that's how powerful God is. We sang about it, you know, how absolute is his providence. Okay? So he, he uses this unbeliever who's, who's, who's a who's an ethnic outsider, uh, you know, she's an outsider in terms of, of being a widow, she's an unbeliever, she's an out, outsider spiritually and, 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 and in terms of faith, but she's also a sinner. I mean, later on when her son dies, she, she gets angry at Elijah because Elijah lives there with him. She gets angry at Elijah and she says, have you come to bring my sins to remembrance? She doesn't deny her sin. We don't know, it doesn't tell us what those sins were, but, but she's clearly a sinner and she, she doesn't even deny it. So she's an outsider in every way. And and look what God does. He provides through her to Elijah. But then it says there was food for Elijah and the woman and her whole household for many months until God sent the rain. Here's the principle. God's provision through you is also God's provision to you. Okay. Now here's the point I want to make, and I just want to end off with a scripture in, in Luke chapter 4, where Jesus actually refers to this. In Luke chapter 4, the famous um, sermon where Jesus says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, etc. Uh, and then he says in verse 26, yet Elijah, sorry, verse 25, I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time, when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. And then it says in verse 28, all the people of the synagogue were furious when they heard this. And they got up and drove him out of the, of, of the town and took him to a brow of a hill of the town, uh, sorry, uh, on which the town was built in order to throw him down the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd. And went on his way. You know, we say, okay, yeah, but you know, I'm, I'm humble. You know, I can I can receive from outsiders. You know, I can I can I can receive stuff. But the but the reality is, so often we're proud, and we ca- we ca- we cannot receive by grace. Our pride prevents us from receiving by grace because if you're proud, you say, I don't want any handouts. I don't want anything I haven't worked for. I don't want anything I've earned. And the problem is that prevents us from receiving grace because where grace is not opposed to effort, it is opposed to earning, according to Dallas Willard. Grace is not opposed to effort, but it is opposed to earning. And pride makes you want to earn it and say, I'm a self-made man. I deserve this. I earn this. That's what made these people want to kill Jesus because they said, we are the people of God. We deserve it. No one else deserves it. We've earned it by virtue of being God's people. But if it's by grace, God can use anyone. And, you know, so often we'll say, no, I'm not proud and so on, until you have to receive. I, a couple of years ago, I was in, in Somerset West, and, and there, was a, there was a strike, you know, of, of the guys that, that who, who use the petrol pumps, you know, the uh, guys who, who pump your petrol for you. And many of the owners of the petrol stations had to pump the petrol themselves. And I remember one morning early driving into a petrol station and uh, the owner guy was there, you know, he was the only one on, on, uh, you know, at the petrol station and he ran up to the pump, you know, took the pump and, you know, put in petrol for me. And afterwards I did what I always do to everyone who puts petrol for me. I 
You should have seen his face. He was so offended. You know, when I gave that, when I offered that five rand to him, he said, How your geld? Keep your money. And it was really, he was upset and offended, deeply offended, because I gave him a tip that his workers receive every day. But he couldn't receive it because of pride in his heart. And so often we don't know the pride in our hearts until we have to receive something that we think is beneath us. Oh, I don't need that. How dare you offer what are you implying about me by offering me that? Well, what I want to say in closing is God's salvation is like that. It'll offend us if we're proud because it implies all kinds of really bad things about us. It implies that we are sinners. That's why we need salvation. I'm so sinful that Jesus had to die for me. On the other hand, I'm also so loved that he was glad to die for me. But even Jesus himself, I mean, that salvation comes through Jesus. Jesus was an outsider. He was hated even by his own people. We read about it now in Luke chapter 4. Despised. I mean, one of the biggest problems that the, the Christians, the early Christians had in order to convince the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah was they said, but then why did he hang naked on a cross and die. If he's, if he's this glorious Messiah, how, why did he die the most shameful, pathetic death imaginable? What kind of a pathetic Messiah is that? Can you see how he's like the widow? He's an outsider. He's not the ideal package for the, for the gift to come in, for the provision to come in, and yet it comes through him. A Messiah who died on a cross, who died a shameful death, who hung there naked, not with a nappy on, literally completely naked. Humiliated, shamed, devastated, tortured to death. He hung there and he screamed, the text says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Not the most inspiring, you know, it's not like freedom. <laughs> Like William Wallace in Braveheart. <laughs> and many people look at that Messiah and they say, Him? Humiliated, weak, shamed. Is he God's provision? That's a bit beneath me. Many people say that. Maybe not out loud, but in their hearts. Many people say, Is he going to save me? And they say like the guys on the cross, you know, or, or the guys next to the cross, he can't even save himself. He wants to save others, but he can't even save himself. And we become offended. But it's only pride, pride that makes us offend. You see, God designed God, his provision of salvation to come in exactly that way. So it'd be a bit offensive so that the proud cannot receive it. You see, in the kingdom of God, it's not the good that are in and the bad that are out, like in every other religion. It's the humble that are in and the proud that are out. Those who will humble themselves and trust and receive the free offer of salvation, even when it comes in a bit of an offensive way, they are in. And those who say, this is beneath me, they're out. So my question to you is, which are you?
you part of the humble who are in? Or are you part of the proud that are out? Does God's provision of salvation through Jesus offend you? It's designed to offend you. It's going to offend you. But how do you respond to that offense? Do you humble yourself and receive it and say, yes, <laughs> this is the kind of salvation that I need? Or do you say, pull up your nose at it and get offended and say, hoe your geld, keep your money. Thank you for listening. Remember that our sermon audio and videos are also available on Shofar TV. Go to www.shofaronline.tv to download and share. Sing.